Red 6, this is Blue Actual. Do you copy over? Roger, Blue Actual. Red 6 copies. Red 6, bring up your platoon to the line. Roger, Blue Actual. We're on the move. Welcome, my friends, to the View from the Front podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine, an author, and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. Every week, I primarily do three things. Cover emerging hotspots and foreign policy news that you absolutely should know. Work to unite our country and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. And finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode. This podcast comes out every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. And if you love the show, you can always help sustain and support the show for $5 per month, or you can sign up for a year and save 10 bucks, paying only $50 per year. And with all of that out of the way, let's get started. This is the May 18th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. We have a ton to cover today. Uh, in this episode, we'll be discussing quite a few topics, which you probably haven't seen in the news And as I say almost every week, our media does a terrible job covering our military and potential hotspots. So I'm hoping to fill this void. As you know, I have uh, timestamps in the episode notes. So if you want to jump to a certain section, you can easily do so. And as always, we'll end with plenty of motivation and wisdom. Let's just get right into it. So I try to stay away from politics. As you guys all know, it's not exactly a way to grow an audience but I feel like that this week there are at least two things I have to address that involves our foreign policy now the first one involves former President Trump and the town hall he gave on CNN where he would not commit to backing Ukraine in the war with Russia he during that town hall on Wednesday said that he thinks Everyone should stop. He wants everyone to stop dying, was his words. And I'll read them. I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying. Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. That's what he told CNN anchor Caitlin Collins. And so there's some issues with that. Of course, she tried to press him, and he just would not commit to backing Ukraine. And unfortunately, those comments are, in my opinion, poorly informed and not a wise piece of policy for the U.S. But I I should explain why, because we do have a lot of new listeners. And so let me just kind of lay this out real quick. And I'm going to do my best to not go on a full rant or raise my voice or sound like often I can sometimes sound. Because I will not lie, I am very passionate about Ukraine and Ukraine's success. And I think it was so unfair what has happened to them. And so I am not a unbiased person in this matter. But I think once I lay out what I'm about to lay out, you yourself, if you just look at the objective facts, will feel much the way I feel. First of all, as you know, Russia is ruled by a dictator. Ukraine has an elected president. So you have a tyrannical country that's much larger than Ukraine that invaded a democracy. And this isn't the first time that Russia has invaded Ukraine. It's also not the second time. This is the third time that Russia has invaded Ukraine. And often the media does not say the third invasion. But let me just remind people, Russia first invaded Ukraine in the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014. 
it's almost 10 years ago. And then they followed that up by invading the eastern part of the country in the Donbass region. That was also in 2014. Now, as a reminder, they stirred up unrest in 2014 in the eastern part in the Donbass region. So they stirred up unrest and then they started sending in the little green soldiers who they claimed were locals or mercenaries. And then before long, they were finally like, I forget it. Why are we even pretending? And they sent in regular troops. So that was in... 2014 two different invasions and then as a reminder a year ago in february 2022 almost 200,000 troops invaded so that was the big one where they drove down from belarus so they drove down from the north toward the capital almost or in fact they did reach the outer parts of kiev so they actually reached the outskirts of kiev before they're finally driven back and now we've got the war where it is now where ukraine has managed to survived this brutal invasion and has mostly started pushing them back and is beginning the preparations for a spring offensive that I believe will be successful. Now, just a reminder as well that Russia has committed an unbelievable amount of number of uh, war crimes in Ukraine. They've bombed cities. They have bombed electrical substations. They have tortured people. They have raped women. They have loaded kids and families on trains against their will and moved them into the inner parts of Russia. So the number of war crimes being committed are just horrendous. And then furthermore, if you go back just a bit in Russia's history, we'll just go back to about the 90s. This is not uncommon behavior for Russia. There was a Russian-Chechen war back in the 90s. That was the first one. There was another one that was three years after the first one, which was the second Russian-Chechen war. There was a Russian invasion of Georgia, the country of Georgia. Russia got involved in Syria. And so they have helped keep in power or invade countries for... They have a 30-year history that's just brutal. And on top of all of that, they've also poisoned people in the UK. And so they... uh, Putin's history is not a good one, and so it's very hard to understand how you could not or, or not see which side of the ledger one should come down on if, if you understand foreign policy. So I definitely wanted to say that because it's, um, it's frustrating to hear one of the leading candidates to become president basically siding with Russia as if this is a... 50-50 contest or as if they're both in the wrong that is not the case one country invaded the other brutally and has done everything in its power to break the will of the the people you know in that democracy so very frustrating comments to say the least there is also one other thing i want to say and this is a little more subtle you have to really be a little bit you know, well-informed to understand this. So former President Trump said that he wants people to stop dying. He wants peace. And that is a very simple thing to say if you're not in the weeds of what is going on. But here's the problem with saying that. Everyone wants peace. I would love to see peace. But the problem with that is Russia does this massive invasion. They've been pushed back. They've killed hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians, but they still control 18% of Ukraine right now, about 18%. And so you don't get to invade a country 
do all of that kind of damage. And then when that country gets up from its knees and starts pounding you back and starts pushing you back and is prepared to absolutely take your head off and regain all of its land back with these offensives, which is what I think is going to happen. These spring offensives, I think, will be very successful, even though a lot of people are tempering their enthusiasm. But Ukraine has built up its forces and it's ready to retake its land this isn't when you can walk in as referee and say, oh, stop, we're going to stop the war. Let's let's not push Russia back. That wouldn't be, you know, let's just let's just stop the killing. Let's stop the dying. It's not that anyone wants war, but this is Ukrainian land, some of it very valuable, especially in the Crimean Peninsula. But even the parts in the eastern Donbass, there's lots of mining regions. There's lots of natural resources all kinds of, uh, I was doing research, in fact, for the fifth Nick Woods book, which is done, I'm working on the edits, but the amount of minerals and types of ore that are in the eastern part of Ukraine, it is unbelievable. So to stop the war at this point and allow Russia to steal those natural resources from Ukraine, after all of this has happened, that is that is a just a... Would, it would be a terrible and tragic mistake, in my opinion. The vast majority of Ukraine, you know, Ukrainian citizens are not in favor of peace at this time. They want to regain their land. There are tons of polls that show 90 plus percent want to keep fighting until they have regained their land. They have neighbors. They have family who are in these occupied territories. They want to get that land back. And... No one wants war, but they have mobilized for war. They didn't want this war. It was put on them, but they want to finish the war. So, like I said, it's a subtle thing, but at this point for any presidential candidate to say that they're going to try to end the war and just stop the killing, that to do such a thing at this point in time is actually a very pro-Russian, pro-Putin position because that is what he wants. That's what he needs to stay in power because the entire thing has been a complete disaster for him. So, like I said, it's a little bit subtle, but, and it's, um, you know, it's kind of in the weeds, but it's really not. It's not, it's not as simple as, you know, Trump is trying to make this sound as far as let's just have peace. It's not that simple. Ukraine has been building up these brigades they're ready for their spring offensives. And of course, now is the time that Putin is probably reaching out to some folks to try to get a peace deal, including China. We know that China has been meeting with Ukraine some. So now that Russia's against the ropes and exhausted, they want to sue for peace. Well, that's not how this works. It takes two people to want peace. Both sides have to be ready. Ukraine is not ready. They want their land back. So... Again, that's a little bit of a subtle thing, but I want to make sure, especially for the new listeners, it's very easy to say, let's just have peace, let's stop the killing. That's not the reality of what's going on. Now, while we are on this subject, let's talk for a second about the lure of isolationism and why I think it's wrong. Now, just in a matter of full disclosure, I used to be a bit of an isolationist, and uh, I felt like, you know, like many, that the U.S. was spending too much abroad and that we were acting as the world's policemen. So I kind of went down that road. But what I 
what I saw happening is what the history books have shown has happened in World War One and World War Two, but I saw it in a more modern era. And I saw that as we retracted, and this was primarily under the Trump administration, but it started a bit under the Obama administration before that, but as we started pulling back, as our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq kind of exhausted the American, you know, opinion toward intervention, as we started to pull back, Russia and China began to expand their uh, spheres of influence. And you started seeing a number of small hotspots flaring up even larger. If you recall, Russia launched its first invasions of Ukraine back in 2014, uh, as years passed. And, you know, the U.S. was criticized, and Republicans actually criticized Obama for not getting more involved in that. But he chose not to. And so that happened in 2014. Russia seizes large parts of Ukraine. You started seeing China begin to exert more control in Hong Kong. They started arresting activists. They started taking over the once democratic Hong Kong, which used to be an incredible, beautiful city, a financial center, a thriving place. What is it now? It's called a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. And what do they do there? If you speak out against China, you get arrested, and um, sometimes people don't hear from you. So they have used... They've, you know, immediately clamped down on social media, on free speech, and, you know, I don't think I'd want to live in Hong Kong, and I don't think you would either. And, you know, along these same lines, as America pulled back from Syria, what happened? It wasn't like things became better. No. Russia moved troops in. They started bombing cities indiscriminately. They propped up the terrible dictator Bashar al-Assad. We talked about him last week. He's kind of won because we didn't keep up the pressure. So, a, you know, a country where people tried to fight for their freedom, we allowed this terrible dictator to con continue to control this place. Uh, also, as America pulled back from Syria, what else happened? Turkey invaded northern Syria created a massive humanitarian crisis, displaced more than 300,000 people. And in a five-day period, less than a week after we pulled back, less than a week after we pulled back, Turkey seizes almost, in five days, 2,000 square miles, more than 600 settlements, and again, displaced more than 300,000 people. Literally uprooted, people fled for their lives, that happened because we didn't want to maintain, you know, a couple thousand troops in, in the northern part of Syria. So that's the kind of thing that, I'm not saying that America's perfect, but I'd easily put our military record for not indiscriminately killing civilians up against the Russians. I'd definitely put our human rights record up against China's. As you know, the Chinese with the Uyghur Muslims, they've, you know, the president of China... Xi Jinping has issued an order saying all religions in China should be Chinese in orientation. He has worked very hard to stamp out the Islamic culture of the Uyghur people. So there are 11 million Uyghurs. What has happened since 2017? Well, the Chinese government has imprisoned more than a million of them. And this is well documented from U.S. intelligence, from a U.N. report... So they've literally imprisoned more than a million Uyghurs in the past six, seven years. They've subjected them to intense surveillance. They monitor their phones. They've imposed restrictions on their religion. 
they've used forced labor, they've used forced sterilizations, and the U.S. has determined that what China is doing constitutes genocide, while the U.N. report says it could be crimes against humanity. So, again, America isn't perfect, but I'd put us up against pretty much any country except for maybe Switzerland. And so, while it's true we don't want to be the world's policemen, if we're not working as a stabilizing force, then either Russia or China is going to be the world's policemen. And that's something that we certainly don't want. So, in the end, to me, it's much better for America to lead coalitions of like-minded countries who seek peace, tolerance, stability, etc. So, that's kind of my evolved views on whether the U.S. should be involved in various places with our foreign policy. But I think if you just look at the situation for a small amount of investment, we often you or align it with other countries in the area to get a much bigger bang for our buck, which also stabilizes entire regions to keep them from basically spiraling out of control. Let's move to that second big topic that I had mentioned at the beginning of the podcast regarding political things I didn't necessarily want to have to talk about, but... The reality is is sometimes these things affect foreign policy, and so I feel like they need to be covered. So uh, since the last podcast, Biden, in fact, it was just yesterday, was forced to cut his foreign trip short. He's over in the Asian area because of the failed negotiations regarding the debt ceiling. And actually, he was supposed to meet with the Quad, which is an alliance of countries that are trying to help contain the expansion of China. As a reminder, those four countries are Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. So these are four large countries. Again, Australia, it's India, it's Japan, and it's the United States. So Biden was supposed to have an important meeting with those three countries and with ourselves, so four countries. But unfortunately, he had to cut it short as part of the uh, final negotiations, hopefully, on the unfortunate situation with the debt ceiling. And so... In a remark, I've got a link to the story. He said that uh, President Biden said, I've made clear America is not a deadbeat nation. We pay our bills. So the frustrating thing about this is that we've got domestic U.S. politics literally affecting the ability of the United States to counter a huge problem for the world, which is that growing threat that China is increasingly almost proud of as they expand, as they threaten Taiwan, as they have started to intimidate some of the smaller neighbors in the area, such as Vietnam and Thailand and many of those countries over there. And the U.S. is trying to help just stabilize the area. Let's keep the sea lanes open. Let's not let China build up fake islands and build military bases on them and the things that China is trying to do. But unfortunately, the U.S. politics at home has uh, required President Biden to come back and it's it's frustrating because, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, raising the debt ceiling is increasing spending or federal debt. But the reality is, is like, this is just simply allowing the government to pay the bills it's already taken on. And defaulting on this would be totally catastrophic. It, it would literally be like just calling your credit card company and saying, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to make that payment. And just, I mean, obviously, you know what that would do to your family if you were to do that and it doesn't take exactly a rocket science to think about what that's going to do to both the stock market the world economy everything else it affects our ability to borrow so it's crazy that we're once again even getting this close to this when this is something that typically 
It was passed three times under the Trump administration, just clean bills. You just raise it. If we want to talk about spending, that's something you do as part of the budget process. You don't wait until you get up against this line and do this. So it's just a little frustrating that this is requiring... It's, it's hurting U.S. influence because President Biden's literally having to force cut short his trip and come back home to deal with what should be not that big of a deal. And it just kind of goes to show that the corrosive politics that we have in our country is, unfortunately, it really has weakened us. It has divided us, and we are not the country, the strong country that we used to be. We are a country that isn't quite burning internally like Rome is burning, but we are literally very divided and things that should not be difficult are very difficult. So I keep hoping that we can keep improving and come together. And that's obviously one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast, but it is not a pretty sight right now as we unfortunately work through these issues. Moving along, now I know normally we jump to Ukraine news, but I feel like some of the biggest news right now is a story that's been undercovered, and so I want to spend just a moment on it, which is the election news that is happening in Turkey. Now, obviously, Turkey is a member of NATO. They are pivotal in everything happening right now, especially even in Ukraine. They control access to the Black Sea, and so I want to talk about it just for a moment because I don't feel like the American media has done a very good job talking about this. Now, if you don't know, Turkey is, their military is huge. They have the second largest military force in NATO after the United States. So literally bigger than Germany, bigger than France. Literally, I mean, they, I don't know why we often in the West don't talk about how crucial Turkey is. And they're also one of those countries that literally divide, they're right in the border area of like, they're the northern part of the Middle East, but they also kind of divide East uh, Europe and Asia. They're just right, so centrally located. They have, you know, 775,000 people in their military. We've seen them kind of stand up to Russia as they've blocked the Black Sea. They don't at all um, cower from Russia. So they're a very strong military, but they also push themselves around in NATO. They are preventing, you know, Sweden from joining. They often don't do what the U.S. or some of the NATO want. So they're kind of a thorn in our side, but they're definitely a just a crucial country in NATO. Their president right now is a guy named Erdogan. Erdogan's been in power for quite a while, and he has, after a failed coup attempt, he has really cracked down on journalists and had people arrested. He's thrown government workers he's fired and replaced a lot of people arrested lots of you know police chiefs and various things he's done a lot of things to crack down and become at least somewhat authoritarian at a minimum you have to say that but like i said he's also done some good things but he was facing an election and i had kind of hoped he would lose because uh you know absolute power corrupts as we all know and in this election, he actually didn't get enough of votes. And and by the way, I should say the main Democratic opponent against him who wants to try to take Turkey back in a better direction, they he was barely you know, he was barely allowed to have his name mentioned in media. Even Twitter was getting was blocking people from talking about this competitor. So they tried their best to make sure or Erdogan tried his best to make sure that Erdogan won. There were three people running in the race, and he did 
win enough to knock out the third one, but it's going to go to a runoff. So thankfully, this second guy that I had hoped would win, who's much more, I guess, European and wants to take Turkey more into the future, he did come in second, thankfully. Because like I said, he was barely had his name mentioned in the media, and it's now going to go to a runoff. So that's the potential good news. And I'm hoping that with the runoff, which will obviously involve a second election, there'll be more time to talk about this guy whose name they've tried their best to keep out of the public. But I did want to give Erdogan some credit. I did want to say he did allow this election. So that's some good news because there was even talk about what he might or might not do regarding that. But So there is an election. He got first place, but not enough. He didn't clear 50%, so it's now down to two. So he's down to two people. It's him and this kind of pro-Western guy that I still would like to see win. Now, let me explain what could possibly happen now but as this runoff starts to move or pr- proceed, I guess. Now, unfortunately, this runoff will probably be decided based on that third candidate that I mentioned earlier. He's a far-right nationalist. He's even further to the right than Erdogan. He got 5% of the vote. If he chooses to endorse, and he can either do an endorsement of Erdogan, who is more conservative than the other guy, so he may throw himself behind Erdogan. If he does that, then Erdogan's almost certainly probably going to win. But there's also a chance that maybe he'll throw his support behind the second guy that's more pro-Western. I certainly hope that's the case, but he's probably going to be the one who decides who ends up winning this thing. So, just in full disclosure, I was a little surprised that Erdogan won. I, I was convinced that he would be voted out by you know the sane people in Turkey who would say, we can't have this guy imprisoning people and doing this kind of crackdown. And I want to know, why is this guy still popular? And I actually found an article in G0 Media. Again, that's G0 Media. I've got a link in the article, if you or in the, new, in the newsletter, podcast notes, whatever you want to call them, if you want to look at it. But they kind of lay out why Erdogan is still somehow popular. And I wanted to share just a few things from that. First, their inflation is at 44%. The lira, which is Turkey's currency's, it's fallen 76% since Erdogan's term in office, since, and that's since 2018. So imagine if the dollar had fallen 76%. They've still got homeless people from that earthquake, 1.5 million, that killed 50,000 people because of cronyism, corruption. So you'd think this guy would not be popular. But one of the writers in G0 talked about, here's what the guy's done to stay in power. He's offered cheap housing loans. He's implemented a debt relief program for millions. He passed a law that allowed 2 million Turks to retire immediately. So imagine if someone in the U.S. government was like, you know, 2 million, if you were to try to put that to U.S. terms, it might be more like 5 or 10 million. But imagine if a president suddenly said, hey, 5 million Americans or 10 million Americans can retire immediately. How happy that would make people. He's also raised the minimum wage for the private sector by 94%. So he's raised minimum wage and he's done a good job apparently of navigating. He appeals to Islamic conservatives. So he's obviously far right. He appeals to those who are super religious, 
but he hasn't gone too far with it. So he's not imposed harsh Islamic laws on those who are non-religious, on those who are more kind of pro-Western and aren't super, or moderate, aren't super Islamic. He's not, you know, made them angry. So he's basically navigated this quite well. And so I guess I'll go in this runoff election. I still hope that he doesn't win, but... Having read that article, I feel a little better about him, honestly. And in the end, as long as he's willing to allow elections, and if he wins, I mean, we can't ask for more than that. So, you know, of course, he's doing it in a heavy-handed way with how the media is blocking out the other guy's name and some of the arrests and all, but at least he's allowing elections to happen. And so I have to try to celebrate. I like to have a spirit of hope, and I have to try to celebrate what we can. And so I still hope this other guy wins, but... Having read all the things he's done, he's clearly not as certain of his um, grip of power and having to do all these things to stay in power. So, And he's still narrowly, barely edged into this runoff. So we'll, we'll see if he gets the 50%, but I'll keep you guys posted on that. And I hadn't seen much of it in Western media, but I thought it definitely needs to be talked about because the, the future and direction of Turkey is huge for NATO and for stabilizing that important area that it, as I talked about earlier, occupies between Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Let's move from Turkey to the Ukraine-Russia war, which is, of course, what many of you are here for. So, since the last podcast, quite a bit has happened, and almost all of it, maybe much of it for sure, but a lot of it is good. Definitely good if you're one of those who's pulling for Ukraine. So we begin with, let's talk about Bakhmut. That's where a ton of fighting has happened. And the great news there is that Ukraine is starting to achieve some success there. They've been pushing forward on the flanks. Even Russia admits this. The head of the Wagner group, Prigozhin, we talk about him a lot. He said that a Ukrainian operation was in full swing. And unfortunately, in some places, they are successful. And so they are pushing Ukraine on the two flanks, has been pushing forward, has been taking ground. I have a map of that if you want to look in the episode notes to see some of that. There was also some information that was confirmed that came from the UK Defense Intelligence. You know, they do regular updates. It talked about that Russia's 72nd separate Motor Rifle Brigade, which is kind of hard to say, but their second, 72nd Motor Rifle Brigade likely withdrew in bad order from their positions on the southern flank that Ukraine had regained at least a kilometer of territory. Uh, on another one, they talked about that in the middle, Wagner continues to try to press forward, but Ukrainian, you know, they, as I said earlier, Ukrainian forces have made tactical progress, stabilizing the flanks to their advantage, and one other thing that they mentioned is that they were able to reestablish a more secure use of their road. There's a road called uh, 0506. It's a supply road. They've been fighting back and forth over it. Ukraine managed to re-grab that. So again, this isn't even the main spring offensive, but some, I think some updated, better trained units from Ukraine, according to some of the stuff I've read on social media. Of course, Ukraine keeps most of the stuff pretty you know, tied to their vest as they should. But I think 
some newer units have gone up there and are trying out some smaller scale stuff. And you can watch this stuff all over um, social media. They're bringing up tanks and armored personnel carriers, and they're very easily clean, uh, clearing trenches. And um, it's a, if you're like I said, if you're for Ukraine, it's a wonderful sight to see for sure. So the Ukrainian forces seem to be very well trained. From you know, as an old infantryman myself, and a guy who's watched a lot of fighting from various places through social media, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've watched our own forces for the past 20 plus years, and we are definitely some of the best out there. If you watch these Ukrainian units, they were trained by the West. They were trained by NATO. Some of them were trained by Americans. They are very good, and they're fighting for their homeland. They are aggressive. They know what they're doing, and they're fighting against mostly conscripts from Russia. So it's a very one-sided operation if you watch some of these videos. Let's move from the fighting to support for Ukraine. Now, the long-term listeners know I've been a little frustrated with German support to Ukraine up to this point. It's been slow. It's been pretty small. But since the last podcast, something amazing happened. Germany announced that it's going to support Ukraine with the largest aid package yet, worth nearly $3 billion dollars. Uh, it includes lots of military hardware, lots of uh, armored personnel carriers. It involves 30 Leopard tanks. It's got drones, plenty of ammunition. So this was huge. Uh, president Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, had been traveling Europe and he, he visited Germany as a part of this announcement. So this was a pretty big deal. And the second thing I wanted to mention about this aid package is I've got a second story linked where... The German Chancellor, his name's Olaf Scholz, he said, and I wanted to quote this, that Ukraine can expect German aid to keep flowing. And he said, quote, we will support you for as long as necessary, he said, which is obviously uh, Olaf Scholz, adding that it is up to Russia to end the war by withdrawing its troops. So that was a pretty big deal. $3 billion, but also saying that they would continue to support. So I'm hoping that Germany will increasingly start shouldering some of the load. And this kind of just all, you know, aligns with what I was talking about earlier, how the U.S. can help lead other countries and all of us can share the load and help stabilize, you know, international affairs and things such as invasions by other countries to help stop them from spreading. This was definitely great news. Now, we need to move from that to some Russian intrigue. And you'll see how this kind of all plays out as there are several stories that kind of all play in together. But first, I need to talk about a Washington Post story that they reported on some leak information that had come out that the head of Wagner, Prigozhin, we talk about him almost every week, had secretly met with Ukrainian intelligence and said that if Ukraine... If they're, uh, that if Ukraine would withdraw from Bakhmut, if they would move their soldiers back, that Prigozhin would give information on Russian troop positions, which Ukraine could use to attack them. So think about that. So Prigozhin is alleged to have told Ukrainian intelligence he would give up Russian troop information if they would move their troops out of Bakhmut so he could take it. Now, he's trying to take this partly for Putin, um, but... It's just an extraordinary 
thing that was picked up in this, you know, previously unreported U.S. intelligence documents that this would happen. Now, Prigozhin has denied this, but I will say Wagner and Russian forces, we know this because I've reported on it for weeks, but he's complained about not being supplied well. He clearly doesn't like some of the commanders in Russia's military. And so it's not too outlandish, and he wants Wagner, his group, to look like just the most elite force ever. So it is not too outlandish to think that something like this could have happened. Again, this is what our intelligence believed happened, that he met with Ukrainian military intelligence and offered this stuff. So it's not too insane to think about that he might give up some of the commander positions of those he didn't like, that he wanted to seize Bakhmut so that Wagner would look very successful. If he could do this without Putin knowing, then he looks successful. Some of his rivals are killed off. Now, he's denied it, obviously. He said that he was never in Africa, that someone is, like, putting this out there to create, you know, dissension among the Russian military. But, so he's denying it, obviously, that, um... He didn't do it, so obviously I'll throw that out there. But that's the first thing I want to mention because you'll see how all of this kind of ties together in just a moment. So while all of this is happening, Russia also lost four aircraft in one day. And what's crazy about this is they lost four aircraft in Russian territory. Now, there's lots of conflicting information about what might or might not have happened on why these four... Uh, aircraft were shot down. It was two jets, two helicopters. Some believe like skittish Russian forces shot them down. Some believe Ukrainians fired anti-aircraft stuff into like Russian territory in an area that used to be considered safe. It's not real clear and that kind of you know gray area that kind of confusion only makes it even scarier if you're a Russian aircraft to know that you may not even be able to fly in Russian territory without getting shot down. So four in one day, no one's exactly sure why it happened. One of them, uh, one of the helicopters that crashed, literally crashed 50 kilometers from the Ukrainian border. I mean, that is, that, there aren't even, that, that is an extreme range if it was some type of Ukrainian missile that fired that far. So it's, you know, I don't know if Russian forces did it. I don't know if, Ukraine has some partisans or some troops that went in Russian territory that shot these down. I, no, no one really knows. Lots of speculation, and it's probably not worth, you know, talking about that speculation too much. But all I do know is that if you're a Russian pilot, it's not. it must feel even less safe now than it did before. And I'm not sure it felt real safe before, but Russia is definitely trying to figure out what happened in this situation. Now, at the same time that these helicopters and aircraft are getting shot down in Russian territories, you've got the eastern Ukrainian city of Luhansk, which is obviously occupied by Russia. Now, this city that Russia has controlled since 2014, almost 10 years since they took it from Ukraine, it's 60 miles from the front line. It's been out of reach of most Ukrainian weapons. It's been relatively calm. But since last Friday, it has come under regular attack. These are those Storm Shadow cruise missiles that we talked about that Ukraine had been provided by Britain. So the Britain give, the Brits give them these Storm Shadow missiles, and the Ukrainians are already using them. They're uh, hitting several targets there. And so 
this place that had been stable and you know peaceful is suddenly getting hit by missiles and so that's adding to this fear of the Russians in in these occupied territories because the Russian commanders know that really at this point there's almost nowhere that's safe including if you're flying in a helicopter you know 20 or 30 miles behind Russian lines there's no guarantee you're not going to get shot down now I have one more small point to make before I reach the larger point that I keep alluding to this entire time so uh you you guys know that for weeks I've been saying even though there've been so many US generals say I don't know that this you know Ukrainian offensive is going to be that great the Washington Post wrote an editorial saying you know keep your hopes in check Ukraine's military and its leaders political and military leaders have been saying don't get your hopes up blah 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 I've been saying all along I actually think it'll be quite successful if not very successful I actually saw that there is a former U.S. general, uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who's retired. He was a uh, actually very high for, former commanding general of the U.S. Army Europe. He actually said, and I wanted to quote this, just because it reinforces what I've said. But he says, "quote I actually expect, however, that they will be quite successful." Meaning the Ukrainians, they've been training hard. The West has provided a lot of very good equipment. But also the Ukrainians have worked hard to build up several armored brigades that will be used to penetrate these long, linear Russian defenses. So he's just basically saying what I've been saying for weeks, which is that Russia has these long lines. They don't have reinforcements. They don't have, if there's breakthroughs, they really don't have any way to deal with it. And so he's saying what I've been saying, that I think that they're well equipped and that they are definitely hungry to take back this land. So I think they're going to be successful. Okay, so you've been patient as I've laid out all of these sets of facts. And I laid all of that out because I wanted to share what a long-time reporter, a foreign correspondent who's written for The Atlantic, for The Daily Beast, what she had to say. And she's covered Russia for 20 years. And I wanted to read a piece that she wrote, just a few graphs, in The Washington Post. The title is, I've never seen the Kremlin so rattled. So she's never seen, obviously, Russia this rattled. Let me just read this. A mysterious drone attack on the Kremlin. That was, of course, if you recall, a week or two ago. A car bombing that wounded a key advocate of the invasion of Ukraine. That also was a couple weeks ago. There was a uh, a uh, big-time blogger, pro-Putin, pro-Russia kind of cheerleader for the war who died when he was given a present that had a bomb in it okay so mysterious drone attack the car bombing that wounded that key uh, advocate of the invasion and then four military aircraft shot down in a single day inside russia's borders and here i will continue reading quote if the ukrainians and their allies wanted to rattle the russian leadership it's working never in more than two decades of covering vladimir putin's regime have I seen it in such an obvious state of chaos and disarray? These days, Kremlin watchers don't have to read tea leaves or decode cryptic utterances from the leadership to spot the signs of intrigue. It's all out in the open, thanks to Putin confidant Prigozhin, which of course he's the head of Wagner. So the, the column just goes into how Russia is increasingly just freaked out. They know the war isn't going well. Things are happening that they can't even explain from those drones on top of the Kremlin to Russian aircraft getting shot down. There are constant, just weird fires that are happening in military buildings in Russia. I don't even bother reporting on them half the time, but sometimes um, 
There are uh, oil installations that catch on fire. So there's either partisans taking uh, action in Russia, and there has been on social media a new group that came out that is anti-Putin and claim they're Russians. But there's also plenty of uh, information out there on social media that suggests that in many cases uh, these could be some Ukrainian you know, intelligence or some type of forces that are doing some type of missions inside of Russia. But regardless, things are happening in Russia and they are odd and they are not good. And it's increasingly making people in Russia feel very unsafe. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that if you go back a full year when Russia invaded Ukraine, that's how the Ukrainians felt at first, when it felt like defeat was going to happen. As the Russian forces pushed toward the capital, Kiev, there was an air assault element of Russian troops that landed in an airfield that were already near and in Kiev. There was, K or I guess Spetsnaz is probably the right term, I almost said KGB, but there was definitely Russian intelligence forces in gun battles inside Kiev trying to kill the president. So there's all this uncertainty happening you know there's no communication the internet's out it's just like what is going on and so that kind of confusion is scary for anyone it's frightening and so it's starting to happen in russia when you have guys like prigozhin accused of willing to give up positions you have russian aircraft getting shot down inside russia you have attacks happening inside russia that no one can figure out who's doing it you have dissident groups saying they're going to start an armed struggle against russia it is starting to get very dicey inside Russia. So I did want to cover that. That's just not me saying that. This is a reporter who's covered uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia for 20 years who literally says it's literally the worst she's seen it in two decades, in 20 years. So this is all becoming very real for Putin, for sure. Now I want to cover two more super brief things regarding Ukraine, and then we're moving on. The first one is, this is kind of an example of Western media making something sound worse than it was. I really thought it was a big story at first, but uh, headline is, Russian attack damages Patriot system. Now, of course, the Patriot systems are those amazing anti-air missiles that the U.S. has had since back in the 90s in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We talked about how those were provided. And so, Ukraine has continued to be under just serious air attack. In fact, they just shot down 18 missiles a day ago, but... Unfortunately, one of those, the Patriot system, was damaged. So I go to read this article thinking, oh, this is horrific, because I think we only sent two of them. But turns out that it was hit by some debris and that it's actually still functional, uh, still mission-capable, according to a U.S. defense official, uh, though they are still trying to look at the amount of damage. So to me, this was kind of one of those throw-a-headline-out to make you read the article, a um, clickbait, if you want to call it, because if it's still mission-capable to me... That's not, um, you know, it's just just trying to scare people, I swear. But it, uh, the second thing is that Russia has agreed to extend another uh, deal for the uh, Ukrainian grain. And so that's good news. I've never really dug in that. I started digging some a year or so ago when those were first announced. But it's, um, you know, as long as the grain is getting out, it's apparently enough of a win-win for Ukraine that... You know, it is what it is, but I'm glad that at least that the deal was agreed to and that, again, they can get out grain through the Black Sea. And that's good for many countries throughout the world, as well as food prices. And I assume it's at least somewhat good for Ukraine since they can at least make some money for that grain that would otherwise just be wasted. 
it probably goes without saying, but I have links to both of those stories, especially if you want to get into the weeds on the grain deal. You can go click the link, and it's I believe that one's an AP article, and so you can read it for free. Yeah, that one's an AP article. So definitely go take a look if you want to get into the weeds on that some. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free to do so unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. Make sure to visit my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, so you'll never miss a future show. Again, that's free. Or you can support the show and help me reach my dreams by signing up for a $5 per month subscription. People are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books sooner, which I promise you I'm trying to do. Believe me, the best way to support me is by signing up for a paid subscription on my Substack page. Long term, becoming a full-time author again would provide more time for me to write fiction, cover news, and try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things I feel drawn to do, which my regular listeners definitely know. So again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com, or you can sign up at Patreon or Venmo. All of these links can be found on my Substack page, and obviously, you can cancel at any time. Now, we have just three more brief news items, and then we will get to the motivation and wisdom section. So the first one that I wanted to briefly bring up was involves China. They have sentenced a 78-year-old citizen to life in prison on spying charges. I tried to read the article and like most things, it's impossible to know if this guy was actually a spy or not. Um, who could possibly know? It is supposed to affect relations between the U.S. and China even more so, since obviously they're denying. But again, how do you know if someone's a spy or not? I think my bigger point on that is that this is, you know, China is becoming like Russia. It is not a country I would want to be in. It is not a country I would want to visit and I say that someone who loves martial arts, they used to want to go to China to visit the, um, you know, the Shaolin Kung Fu Temple. And there's amazing historic things in China, but there's no way I would visit China. And so, but they have arrested a U.S. citizen. He's actually been detained since 2021. So the April 15th, 2021, the guy's already been in jail for two years. and But they're now officially announcing his prison sentence. One final thing I wanted to mention is that he held a permanent residency in Hong Kong. So, again, we mentioned Hong Kong earlier. Apparently, you can't even visit there. So, China is being China. The second thing I wanted to mention was that we know that the country of Iran had been dealing with serious unrest. And at least they kind of loosened up some things. They managed to wear down the unrest and so it looked like that their government had made the steps necessary to stay in power. But there is an article that I link to, and again, this one's in G Zero Media. And the headline of the article is "Iran's leaders are asking for trouble." And the article talks about that after basically, you know, getting things calmed down, that the conservative government in Iran is now starting to once again really try to crack down on women who aren't wearing uh, head coverings. And so as part of it, there's a new law where women who aren't wearing head coverings, they can be kept out of school. They can be den denied services. 
Uh, businesses that welcome them or allow them can be shot, uh, fined or shut down. And then last month, there were cameras installed in many of the city streets to boost enforcement. And so I just mentioned all that because perhaps this will lead to, once again, unrest in Iran. That's something we'll definitely keep an eye on because these seem like pretty draconian, harsh laws. So we'll see. we'll see what happens there over that. And then the final thing I wanted to mention was there was an attack on a U.S. convoy in Nigeria. At first, I thought this could be, you know, some bigger news. But it appears that this was not a targeted attack on the U.S. convoy. And so, you know, Nigeria is not necessarily the most safest place. But the attackers did kill four members of the convoy. Um, but no Americans were uh, thankfully killed in that attack. I do have a the full statement, in fact, from the Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, if you want to read that. And it talked about that actually for the mission that the um, they were traveling to a you know a flooded part of the country as part of an a, an advance mission to um, allow for a larger visit. So it's unfortunate that you know this convoy was attacked because. There was, like I said, there was a U.S.-funded flood response that was going to happen in this area, and this attack happened. I'm sure it looked like two nicer vehicles, and they were probably trying to carjack or take some people hostage or something before they were fought off. But um, anyway, it's just a reminder that even non-military folks who are serving our country, people in the State Department, they face serious risk, even in countries that are, in theory, not at war. And now it is time for the best part of the show. We're going to begin the motivation and wisdom section with a little pep talk. Because someone out there needs to hear this. I know someone out there needs to hear this. Listen. Life is passing you by. You only get one shot at life and you're letting it slip through your fingers day by day. Life has beaten you down, kicked you in the face, ignored you punished you, rained on you, assailed you with illnesses and injuries, burdened you with debts and levels of despair that I know are breaking your spirit. But you have to get up. Do you hear me? You have to get up. You're going to get up, and you're going to get up now, and you're going to start fighting back. Do not let despair win. Get up and take a step forward to confront these things facing you right now. Do it now. And let the following items that I'm going to share lift your spirit and take you to a higher level. You can do this. You're meant to do this. And you have to do this. For yourself, for your family, for your creator. And with all of that being said, I truly hope these help pick up your spirits, that they help revive your hopes, and that they help make you a better person. Alright, so I hope that pep talk helped motivate you and wake you up. And now that you're paying attention, let's share a few more items to help feed and motivate you just a bit more. First one comes from Fearless Motivation. And this is a list of eight habits for success. And I thought this was a pretty good list. So, number one, read every day. Number two, focus on high-level tasks. Number three, Make your health a priority. Number four, learn from people you admire. Number five, plan your day the night before. Number six, keep your goals in front of you. 
Number seven, take action, even when it's scary. Number eight, have a powerful and inspiring why. So again, they were read every day, focus on high-level tasks, and that means ignore your email, your social media, the little silly things that aren't that important. Focus on the hard, high-level tasks. Number three, make your health a priority. Number four, learn from people you admire. Number five, play, plan your day the night before. Number six, keep your goals in front of you. Number seven, take action even when it's scary. Number eight, have a powerful and inspiring why, as, as in why are you doing this? And I will say on that plan your day the night before, that's so that other people don't take up your day. If you have a plan and someone comes up to you and says, hey, what are you doing? Or can you do this? It's much easier to say, no, I have this planned if you already have your mind set that way. So it's a pretty good list. Those are eight things, eight habits for success. All right, next one. It's not who you are that holds you back. It's who you think you are not. That was one I had to read a couple of times, but then when it hits you, it kind of hits you. So it's not who you are that holds you back. It's who you think you are not. And so start thinking you are successful and stronger than you are. That's what you need to be doing. All right, next one. Strength doesn't come from what you can do. This is a great one. Strength doesn't come from what you can do. It comes from overcoming the things you once thought you couldn't. That one's a great one, isn't it? Strength doesn't come from what you can do. It comes from overcoming the things you once thought you couldn't. It's probably not the worst idea to think back in your life to some things that you didn't think you could do that you ended up doing and making a list and looking at that list from some time to time to be proud of the things you have accomplished, the things you thought you couldn't do that you somehow managed to do. All right, the next one, and this one involves kind of an image, but I'll describe it. I think it's so good that it's like worth sharing. And the image is, you know, it's got a person standing, a little hand-drawn person, and there's a, like a big wall right in front of the person, above the person's head. And then there's a step in and then another wall just as tall. And then a step in and another wall just as tall. So there's these massive walls in front of this person that would look very difficult to climb. And then there's that same amount of height to the right of it as a comparison. And it shows that person with really small steps. And the image is small steps get you there faster. And so if you can just visualize that for a second, instead of just thinking about these massively hard task which are overwhelming break them down into smaller and smaller assignments and that was something that Henry Ford always talked about as well is the more steps you can break something down into the easier it's going to be to do and the more likely you're actually going to start on it because anything that's too large of a task is very daunting it's very intimidating but once you break it down you'll jump into it much faster so how many steps can you Whatever goal you're trying to reach, how many steps can you break that down into? And then try to break it down into even a few more. And so it could be as simple as I'm going to go start the email and at least find the person's email address and at least start an outline. I don't have to send the email today, but I got to at least do that. I got to at least sort of being intimidated about this big thing that I need to send this scary email to someone, at least start part of it. 
today. Better yet, start part of it in the next five minutes. Okay, next one. This one is pain and failure are part of growth. Again, pain and failure are part of growth. And this is another one that is has an image. And it says, this is how you think growth works, which is just an, a line that's going up. And we all think that that's how it is, that life is a line going up as you get better and as you learn to do whatever trade or whatever dream you're chasing. And then right next to it, it has, this is how it really works, which is you go up a bit and then you get knocked down and it goes down and you go up a bit and you get knocked down. And so it's not a straight line up. So you got to remember that if you got beat down, if you had a setback, maybe you had just uh, kind of what I've been going through with, you had something come up with your family, you've had a time commitment that you didn't plan, an illness or something like that. Those things happen in life, and so the arrow isn't going to stay at 45 degrees positive up. You're going to have some setbacks. It's going to mess up your schedules. It's going to mess up some of the timing that you wanted, but that's just the way life goes. The most important thing is is that you got to get back up and keep going. All right, so let's go to the next one. Balance your thoughts with action. If you spend too much time thinking about a thing, you'll never get it done. It's another great one, isn't it? Balance your thoughts with action. If you spend too much time thinking about a thing, you'll never get it done. Next one. Everything happens for a reason. That reason causes change. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's hard. But in the end, it's all for the best. Again, everything happens for a reason. That reason causes change. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's hard. But in the end, it's all for the best. All right, next one. Be so busy improving yourself that you have no time to criticize others. Again, be so busy improving yourself that you have no time to criticize others. Next one. Surround yourself only with people who are going to take you higher. Oh, that's a great one, isn't it? Surround yourself only with people who are going to take you higher. We all have those people who complain, make excuses, etc., and... While it is true that we need to help those around us, we also can't save someone who's drowning or who isn't um, making it while we're drowning ourselves. So sometimes we got to take care of ourselves first. And the only way you're going to get somewhere in part is by surrounding yourself with people who are going to take you higher. That's a great one. Next one's another good one. This is a real kick in the pants. You can choose courage or you can choose comfort. You cannot have both. Isn't that great? You can choose courage or you can choose comfort. You cannot have both. All right, next one. Magic happens when you don't give up, even though you want to. The universe always falls in love with a stubborn heart. That's a great one, isn't it? Magic happens when you don't give up, even though you want to. The universe always falls in love with a stubborn heart. Next one. Don't miss out on something that could be great just because it could also be difficult. It's another good one, isn't it? Don't miss out on something that could be great just because it could also be difficult. Next one. No one cares about your story until you win. So win. Again, no one cares about your story until you win. So win. Go win. Pretty simple. Next one. Breathe. Let go. And remind yourself that this very moment is the only one you know you have for sure. It's always called the section the motivation and wisdom one and wisdom section and this is definitely one of those wisdom quotes. Again, breathe, 
let go, and remind yourself that this very moment is the only one you know you have for sure. That's a quote from Oprah Winfrey. And along that line of thinking, if there's someone you want to call, should call, need to call, probably a good time to do that today. All right, next one. Stay patient. The best things happen unexpectedly. It's a great one, isn't it? I think sometimes we get beat down and we try something over and over and over and over. You try and you try. And then you forget that sometimes the wall just falls. So stay patient. The best things happen unexpectedly. So you may be closer to your dream than you actually think. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a -a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. Finally, I should mention my books. I've written 11 of them. You can find all of those books on Amazon by simply searching my name, Stan or Mitchell, or you can find a link to them in the Substack notes. Again, thanks so much, guys, for joining us this week. And with that, I am out.